crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and, Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Good morning. Everything is an opportunity to either come near Christ uh, or to run from him. I just think it's amazing that, um, that the men come and say, she's dead, don't trouble the teacher anymore. Like, what, what irony. This is, this is the time to trouble the teacher. This is, this is what we are meant to do, come near with our petitions, with our needs. Well, welcome back to Mark. Lord willing, we will be concluding chapter 5 today. And this is the final installment to Mark's Impossible Miracle Trilogy. There's three stories placed together to absolutely show that Jesus carries the very power of God. It's the power of God over the natural world, the spiritual realm, and disease and death. And disease and death are really just one and the same thing. One begets the other, and both find their source in the sinfulness of man. Mark 4 ends with Jesus calming the raging sea by the word of his mouth. That's power over nature. He controls the wind and the waves. Mark 5 begins with Jesus calming the raging man 
by casting out of him a whole city of demons, demonstrating that there are no spiritual forces more, power than him, more powerful than him. And now there's a sandwich story whereby Jesus heals a woman afflicted with bleeding while on his way to heal a young girl on the brink of death. Unequivocally, Jesus is not just a man of God, as the prophets before him were. He is God, worthy to be praised, to be worshipped. He's given the name of all names. He is the King, the Lamb, Messiah, Lord. Jesus and the Father are one, John 10.30 says. So, our story begins at Mark chapter 5, verses 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd had gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. This is a story of contrasts, disease and dying, rich and poor, hopelessness and faith. What Mark does to shape this story is really fantastic. We will spend some time exploring all of these things, these contrasts, but to start right at the get-go, we have a great crowd receiving Jesus. They receive him with cheering, with jostling, with joy at his return. But he has just left a great crowd on the other shore of Galilee, and they ran him out of town. With jeering and with jostling, they sent him away. They said, we don't want your kind of help around here. It's too costly. We lost our herd to the sea. What else will we lose if you stay? The comparison that Mark forwards here is just so strong. So right away, you and I are supposed to ask ourselves, because Jesus is God, are you fighting to catch a glimpse of him moment to moment? Are you clamoring to spend more time with him in his presence, pushing everything else away, looking for more time in his word, more time with his people, more time in his conviction and discipline? Or are you fighting his help? Are you pushing him away because of the costs? Are you scrambling to distance yourself from the challenge, from the trial, from his pruning? As we get deeper into Mark's gospel, we will see the crowds get more and more polarized. Those that are for Jesus and those that are against. The crowds will either be crying, Hosanna, praise God, or crucify, crucify. And every time this happens, we are called to evaluate our own inner motivations, our heart's tendencies. Verse 22 says, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she might be made well and live. Fighting through the crowd, there comes a man. He's known, he's prominent. We'll soon find out that he's a man of some wealth and distinction. Interestingly, Mark records his name. He's Jairus. 
And other than Jesus' own disciples, a very precious few people are given names in this book. So we are to see him as a man of status, cresting the heights of all social, economic, and religious categories. He's a synagogue ruler, which means he's not a rabbi or a teacher, but he's a paid professional in the religious leadership nevertheless. But what's important here is he's a father, a distressed father, running through the streets, wildly straining, we can assume to find help for his daughter who's at the brink of death. In the same story told by Luke in chapter 8, Luke adds that this is his only daughter. And things must be desperate, A, for him to leave her side, and B, because if this isn't a last-ditch effort, he would have probably just sent someone else for a physician. But he's running. When Hallie was two years old, we were leaving Jen's aunt and uncle's place. And we were all at the entrance, and there's, there's an old house, so there were stairs that were very tall and very steep going up to the second floor. And Hallie fell down those stairs. And when Jen picked her up, there was nothing there. She was limp. She handed her to me. And she was empty of life. I would have done anything. I crossed the kitchen, and she woke up, and she had strength in her neck and her arms. You know what I mean? I didn't want to tell this story. It makes reading really hard. My daughter was returned to me. This man is frantic. He didn't know Jesus would be back in town. He couldn't have. So he just happened upon a crowd. He happened to find out that Jesus was near. And coming up to this, coming up to him rather, this man of deference, of dignity, fell at Jesus' feet and implored him, begged him from a place of emptiness and humility, come and lay your hands on my little girl. And the first part of verse 24 says, and he went with him. The immediacy of Jesus' response to this man harkens back to how quickly Peter and Andrew and James and John left their boats to follow Jesus. This is Jesus' new mission. He is following this man. Verse 24, and he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And this verse is a setup. It's a setup for the next story, the one sandwiched in between Jairus's halves. The great crowd that met Jesus at the beach now throngs about Jesus and Jairus on their way to his daughter. And they are following him through the streets, and that provides a woman an opportunity to sneak up to Jesus and steal a miracle. She steals a miracle. Verses 25, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians 
and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. Mark tells us that the crowd, in the crowd, there was a woman with a discharge of blood, which is the language of menstruation, the flow or issue of blood designed by God as the cleansing part of the female cycle of fertility. But something had gone wrong. The bleeding wouldn't stop, and no doctor or healer could help her. In, fi- in fact, Mark tells us that she was no better and had suffered much under these doctors. In fact, she was no better but grew worse. Indeed, she spent everything she had, and her suffering only grew worse. But on top of this pain, the God-given cleanliness laws exasperated the situation even more. Leviticus 15.19 says, When a woman has a discharge, and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Then the next few verses describe more scenarios involving clothing and bedding and intimacy. And then verse 25 says this, If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has had a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge shall she continue to be unclean. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. I will say this. These laws are part of the old covenant between God and Israel. We do not participate in them today because of Jesus' fulfillment of the law at the cross. But not only was this woman's lifeblood ebbing away, her very life slowly leaving her day at a time for the past 12 years, Not only had she lost everything in search of a cure, not only had medicine and science made her condition worse. To all this, she herself was a social outcast, a pariah. Who could be near her? According to the law, the Old Testament holiness code, this woman could not touch anyone, anyone, or be touched by anyone. This would have placed her in a similar plight as the lepers. Because of her condition, she likely had no children, nor the prospect of a husband. She was poor. She was alone. She was reviled. And so when I said she felt that she had to try to steal a miracle, that's no overstatement. In the crowd where she should not be, on an undertaking which she should not have, She sought a healer whom she should not touch. But she had heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Now is this superstition or medicine to touch Jesus? In the first two healings recorded in Mark chapter 1, Jesus touches the ill. That's Simon Peter's mother-in-law and the man with leprosy. And those were both no-nos. Then in chapter 2, the next few afflicted people, Jesus heals by speaking. And that's because the authorities were trying to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. And so his work was to speak healing. By chapter 3, the crowds are pressing in. They want to touch him, verse 10. But as we are about to see, 
Jesus doesn't scold Jairus or this woman for seeking his touch. Instead, he commends them for their faith, their belief in the power of God. And certainly a little further on in Scripture, during the time of the early church, there are even more fantastic stories about healing. People being brought near so that Peter's shadow could fall on them. That's Acts 5. And handkerchiefs and aprons touched by Paul were brought to the sick so they, they could be healed. That's in Acts 19. Now, each time this happens, it's not the fabric or the shadow. <clears throat> it's not the touch. But faith that makes them well. They believe in God. Verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of this disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? At the point of touch, the woman feels healed and Jesus feels healing power leave him. In this mass of humanity clamoring around them, he wants to find her and she wants to get away. The disciples, they think it's ridiculous that Jesus says, who touched me? Because truly the answer is everyone, everyone touched you. Yet in this moment, the lesson of this story is whispered. Maybe you heard it. There were hundreds, maybe thousands that pressed in on Jesus, but only two had faith. Jairus and this woman. Faith is precious. It is a gift of God unto salvation. We can't win it. We can't earn it, we can't fake it, we can't make it, we can't snatch it. It is rare, it is necessary, it is more valuable than gold. And as a gift of God, all we can do is receive it. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and she told him the whole truth. So maybe she was afraid that she was found out, that her plan to be healed in secret was revealed. She broke the law, but in falling down before him, she speaks the whole truth. She confesses. She comes clean, as it were. However, in keeping with Mark's theme of what happens when people encounter Jesus, fear and trembling ought to take in the meaning of worship and reverence. This woman just met God in Jesus, and her restoration is awesome. Nothing is ever the same after being rescued by Christ, and fear of God is the righteous response. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. She speaks to him the whole truth in fear and trembling. The truth of her great need and of his great mercy. This is gratitude. This is worship. 
And Jesus not only affirms her by saying, your faith has made you well, but he then blesses her. He says, shalom, peace. He gives her the peace of God, and this is the peace of wholeness, of total well-being, security, contentment, hope, joy, love. That's shalom. And he sends her away complete and restored. God has answered her, and his answer is shalom. And that's a huge contrast to the chaos and brokenness that she came with. But this woman's brief encounter with Jesus is eons too long for the man that's standing there. The healing of one has just resulted in the death of another. Desperation defies patience. And Mark sets us up when he sandwiches one story inside the other to highlight the extremes, to contrast the situations, to establish distance of time. And again, even though such a small amount of time has passed, it has meant that the time, that time rather, has run out for this little girl. While he was still speaking, while Jesus was still pronouncing peace and wholeness to this woman, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? They said, we have reached the end of what can be done. The joy of the healed woman stands against the devastating news that this man has just heard. Can the contrast be any more profound? Joy versus loss. From Mark's perspective, this is no accident. There are no coincidences. The woman started dying 12 years ago. The girl was born at the same time. She's 12. She began living, growing, becoming. It's an incredible contrast. The last time the woman would have been allowed in the synagogue would have been the same time Jairus' daughter was born. One bleeding out, having her life slowly leave her, agonizingly, hopelessly, while the other one grows, develops, flourishes. But now, only to crash, to fall, to atrophy to the same state. And she dies. When Jairus comes to Jesus in the beginning, in verse 23, he uses a strange word to say, my daughter is dying. The word is eschatos, saying she's at the end. It's the same root as eschaton, the end of all things, or eschatology, the study of the end times. And the men that come to Jairus now confirm that she has come to her end. There is no more that can be done. But verse 36 says, But overhearing what, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And faith is called upon once again. Believe. Jairus, your faith has brought you here. Let it continue. This is very reminiscent of Lazarus' story found in John 11, where Martha says, Lord, if you have been here, 
my brother would not have died. But even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus, the resurrection and the life, says to Jairus, just believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And this is the first reference in Mark to the inner circle of Jesus. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He leaves one crowd only to find another. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those that were with him and went in to where the child was. We know that Jairus was a man of means because the professional mourners had already begun plying their trade. Sproul says that at this time, even the poorest Jewish person was expected to hire at least two flute players and a wailer to mourn a loss in their family. So as the ruler of the synagogue, there was already a crowd of paid weepers, big enough to cause a commotion. And they laughed at him. As masters of the funeral dirge, these people were experts. They knew that the girl was dead. But Jesus clears them out as he clears the temple out. And he touches, sorry, he teaches them that in him, death is only sleep. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he says, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And these are not magic words. Jesus simply tells the girl to rise, and she does. Not even the power of death can withstand Jesus' authority. He takes her by the hand, and in response to the faith of Jairus, commands life to return to her. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. That's what 12-year-olds do. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this hard task. And he told them to give her something to eat. It's often said in these moments of Scripture where someone is given food that it's proof that they're not spirits because ghosts can't eat or drink. But here, some believe, and I, I believe, that Mark includes this detail as a human touch. Jesus, his compassion is practical. The girl would be hungry. He cares for every detail. And again, the appropriate response to meeting God in Jesus is amazement. They were overcome with amazement. Would that not mark the moment of a new worldview? Can you just imagine Jairus saying, 
a little later on, my daughter, God is so good. You were gone from us, and Jesus brought you back. Little one, have faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ. My child, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor deaths, nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This story shows us Jesus' compassion for man, woman, and child. I can't think of another place where this truth is so vividly and clearly taught. The three are equal in value to the Lord. All are in need. All are changed by his touch. Desperation, dependence, necessity, being the great equalizer. They needed Jesus. You and I need Jesus. There's a rich man and a poor woman that come to Jesus. They both prostrate themselves begging. One is famous. We still have his name. One is nameless before and after this miracle. One is known and respected. The other unknown, outcast. One has wealth and means, a place in society. Dignity, status, money, power comfort. The other knew money and all the rest, but had lost it to ignorance or charlatans. How much harder would her life have been? She knew dignity and money and comfort, but lost it, becoming untouchable in her society amongst the people she loved. David Garland writes, in dovetailing these, two, these stories together, of two such dissimilar people, Mark shows us that money, power, and religious status provide no advantage in approaching Jesus. While at the same time being poor, dishonored, even impure, are no barriers to receiving him either. Both the woman and the dead girl were unclean, untouchable, and Jesus touched them both. He was not made unclean, but instead he made the two clean. He took on their iniquity and gave them new life. We think of Isaiah 53, prophecy of the suffering servant. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. We thought he was suffering for his own sins, not ours. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
verse 11 says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Christian, this is our story. Last Sunday from Romans 3, Josh explained how we bring nothing to the table when it comes to salvation. We have nothing good to bring. The only thing we bring is sin and brokenness. Our contribution to salvation is the dirt. But by the blood of Christ, we can be healed, forgiven. His life sacrificed for our iniquity that we might live by faith in abundance now and in glory soon. Church, we worship a risen Savior. Life is different the moment you believe. We can do nothing to earn the gift of faith, the gift of salvation. But once given it, what we can do is throw off everything else, get rid of all hindrances, seek for, seek for Jesus like the woman, run to him like the Father. Let's pray. God in heaven, We are humbled by your love. We are amazed by your goodness. And Lord, we are in fear because of your might. Lord, I pray that this story would be the challenge that I need, that we need, to shed off all the things that hinder, to remove all the garbage and clutter, to stop distracting ourselves with entertainments or created things when we should be about your business. Lord, help us that we would prostrate ourselves, that we would live in a posture of humility, knowing your goodness, begging for more, loving what you are doing to change our stone hearts into flesh. Lord, let that inform our words to each other when we are walking and when we are sitting, when we are with our children, our spouse, co-workers, friends, random people. Once I was dead and now I'm alive. To your glory, for your praise and honor, in Jesus' name, Lord, we pray this. Amen. Remember Christ's sacrifice for us and strengthen us.